0: We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. justice Hey, everybody, thanks for tuning in. This is Shane Claiborne, and I'm so glad uh, we can spend a little time together. And every week we are talking about faith, how faith connects to the world that we're living in right now, because I think we... We know, as my grandmother said, there's a lot of Christians that are so heavenly-minded that we're not much earthly good, uh, that our faith can become just an escape from this world rather than something that compels us to transform this world from what it is now into what God wants it to be. So that's the kind of faith that we're talking about. We like the language of red-letter Christians because it... Um, kind of uh, harkens to the 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 bibles that were printed that had the words that, i mean people now are reading the bible on your phone and stuff i know all that but the, there's these old bibles that have the words of jesus in the gospel highlighted in red and uh kind of reminding us that jesus is the full revelation of god that jesus is the lens through which we're interpreting scripture and understanding how to live in the wild world that we um, find ourselves in right now and I, I love having this little window to share my heart with you but I also love sharing some of uh, my friends and folks that you may know and some maybe new voices for you but today uh, I, I, I'm using this as an excuse to hang out with my brother and my
1: friend Bishop Mark Beckwith uh, good to see you man. Hey, good to see you, Shane. Good to uh, uh, continue to do work in the vineyard together. Yeah,
0: so I did throw the bishop in there. Um, We've got all kinds of uh, different faith leaders that that are part of Red Letter Christians or that have been on this show. Um, But Bishop Mark has really been uh, not a single issue person, but when it comes to gun violence, he certainly has been a a force for life and for good. Uh, Mark helped organize Bishops United Against Gun Violence, which we're going to hear about. We, we're a part of a new coalition of faith leaders, um, national faith leaders for gun safety that we'll talk about. But he's also written a book that I, I have to say, I, I really am honored to have gotten to write the foreword to. Um, and this, this new book is called Seeing the Unseen beyond prejudices paradigms and party lines um and boy it reminds me of this work uh, you know mark before when we were doing all this organizing work around gun violence it was only later that someone was telling me about braver angels and i was like Mm -hmm. this is so fascinating and they kept talking they're like have you ever heard of mark beckwith and i'm like yeah yeah, bishop mark's a friend (laughs) of mine i didn't even know that that was like another of the many hats that you wear but first of all thanks for carving out a little time to talk today
1: man well, thanks for inviting me and, and to have the chance to, to share what we think is important and how our faith and how Jesus is uh, leading invites us into deeper relationship with each other and how we can help heal the world.
0: Yeah, well, I, I think let's dive right into the the new book because I mean it, it's sort of the culmination of so much of this other uh, work that you're, you've you've been doing for decades. Um, but it, it is about gun violence, but it's it's kind of going much deeper than that, right? It, it's re- recognizing that we've got this these political polarities that are really holding us hostage, and I think a lot of the world. Uh, looks at the united states when it comes to gun violence and sees these mass shootings which incidentally are less than two percent of our gun deaths and we're losing 120 lives every single day over forty thousand a year to guns and folks are like why it doesn't have to be that way (laughs) you know the rest of the world's going like grieving for us um so you wrote this book to kind of go deeper and t- tell us, tell us a little bit about it. I mean, obviously I know it, I I loved it, um, but I, I want more and more people to read it. So this is Seeing the Unseen.
1: Well, and uh, it began with an experience that I had when I was a bishop in Newark, New Jersey, and, and across the uh, parking lot from us was a Catholic church that wasn't active but had a feeding program. And I noticed that when I first arrived uh, in my in my ministry there, and then after three weeks, I didn't pay any attention to what was going on. I didn't see it uh, because I'm paying attention to this new diocese, 100 congregations, challenges, problems, opportunities, and I uh, didn't see the folks going next door, uh, and a priest in the diocese said, what goes on next door? And I said, well, there's a soup kitchen. And she said, let's go. And so a group of us went not to serve, but to have, uh, conversations with the guys. And I'm embarrassed to say this. I learned, which I hadn't seen. There were 500 men a day, uh, showing up outside within eyesight of my window, uh, every day. And I didn't see them. Mm. I didn't see them. And, uh, And uh, one of the things that happened at the end of our time as we debriefed and prayed, uh, she stuck her finger in my chest and said, don't you dare go just once. Uh, And so I didn't. And I went uh, every week, sometimes not for very long, but I began to develop relationships. I began to discover that that mission, uh, largely in the West, in the Christian West, West has been uh, doing for others, and sometimes we need to do for others. When they don't have any food, we give them food, or they don't have a place to live, we need to find a place to live. But uh, uh, the real challenge, it seems to me, in ministry and in mission is to be with. Mm. And uh, I was developing relationships, hearing their stories, and over the course of time, uh, many of them became my teacher's and so many of them lived with a level of faith and courage that had never been uh, challenged to that degree in myself. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to see them. And and the culture and my ministry sort of trained me to think, no, no, I don't see them. <laughs> yeah. Don't see them. They're just, you know, part of the landscape, and no, no, they're brothers and sisters, and they have something to teach us, and teach me, and and to be in relationship with them. So yeah, that was just really, really important.
0: Yeah, and I, I think of that that place where Jesus says, I, "I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends." You know that that we're we're not just meant to serve people and run programs, but we're meant to our, our deepest longings for community for friends yeah and when we do
1: for that part of the challenge of doing for is it can reinforce the gap between those who have and those who don't Mm -hmm. and so it mitigates against establishing relationships and being with uh is i think following jesus admonition everyone has something to offer everyone has some wisdom to share that we need to be uh related to and and uh, again that experience of not seeing all this humanity, mostly men, next door uh, really opened my eyes and s- about some of the uh, things that uh, I would uh, 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 think about or the way I would convey uh, certain issues. Uh, for example, and Jesus does this a lot in, in the New Testament, he refers to the poor. Uh, and we refer to the poor, it puts them in a category. And what I've discovered is when you say the poor, you uh, um, don't allow them to have names or stories. Mm -hmm. And they become one sort of category, and it keeps our distance from them. And uh, I'm trying to train myself to say people who are financially poor, there are people who are financially wealthy but are still poor yeah and uh, we tend to just sort of collapse everyone into financial uh, poverty and and make all sorts of assumption and keep them distant. And that's a real problem. I think of that great line by
0: Mother Teresa, where she said it can be very fashionable to talk about the poor, but not as fashionable to talk to them. <laughs> or <like> if, we, <laughs> if we if we really care about folks in poverty, we know their name. Uh,
1: and you spend time in that community. Yeah. Yourself.
0: Yeah. But I mean, I think that relationship, you know, when people ask, they, they said to Mother Teresa, how'd you lift 50,000 people off the streets of Calcutta? She said, I started with one, with one person. And, and it was about that personalism, that love. And you see that in Matthew 25, when Jesus talks about the least of these, right? It's not just the, them, it's you're doing it to me. like yeah. when, and, and it's very personal, visiting people in prison, uh, welcoming folks who are strangers or immigrants or refugees, uh, caring for the hungry. Or we're doing it to Jesus. So, um, I think one of my mentors said, God so loved the world that God didn't send a committee. <laughs> <God's>, <laughs> I guess you can appreciate that as a bishop, right? Uh, but we're right, so good right, at all right. these bureaucracies and programs and treating people as numbers rather than friends. So it's this book, Seeing the Unseen as a Gift. I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, you know, the political paralysis, so you know, because there there is a a class and economic side of this, and I think that's what is so powerful about the times that we're living in um, is that people are being seen. You know, I mean, that's even a saying now I see you, you know, I think the black lives matter movement has been an outcry in the streets to say their names. And we we say the names, we know the the haunting videos of police uh, taking people's lives or, you know, with, with, with uh, 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 uh th- these incidents of gun violence they there's names and stories with it so um when when we think about our country right now i mean this is happening in i think different places of the world but we are particularly entrenched in this per, uh, you know polarizing um Uh, Like politics right now, and you've done so much work with Braver Angels and with helping people listen to each other. Um, Say a little bit more about some of the ways that we can crack the silos that we find ourselves trapped in, really.
1: Well, the tradition I've been ordained in, where I've spent most of my life, uh, the Episcopal Church, uh, and its roots are in the Anglican tradition, which were created, which was created in tension five hundred years ago, uh, in this uh, tension between Catholicism and Protestantism, between the source of truth being what the leaders of the church say and the source of truth being the Bible. And the Anglican Church, through the leadership of Queen Elizabeth I, uh, said, stop, you're both right. We are both. So my tradition was created in tension. And for these past 500 years, we have lived in that tension, sometimes better than at other times. And when you can Enter into that tension, uh, new things emerge, new opportunities arise. And Braver Angels, which you've referred to, and I spent a lot of time working with them, is a national movement to try and build a bridge between red and blue, Mm. between red and blue, not to pull one side to the other, but to say, is there some common ground that we can find? And as I've done this uh, research and thought about it, and it's a key component of my book, uh, a key word for me is mandorla. It's the Italian word for almond. It's the shape that's created when two circles intersect. Mm. Think Venn diagram from sixth grade math. And there is a lot of medieval art uh, that depicts the mandorla, Uh, not a halo, a mandorla, Uh, of the intersection largely between heaven and earth. But now we have uh, these intersections between uh, red and blue and in the gun violence work that we both do together uh, between gun rights owners and gun violence uh, prevention people. Is there common ground and how to build, how to enter into that place Mm -hmm. and how to uh, expand it? And there are forces and voices on both sides, which encourage people to stay in one side of the the circle. (laughs) And so you can demonize the other side. You can spend all your time not seeing the other side, not paying any attention to the other side, and feel very comfortable in that place. And nothing changes. And so uh, I think the challenge for us particularly as Christians is to enter into that space and Jesus is uh big and uh on reconciliation Matthew 5 if you bring a gift to the altar and you remember that your brother has sister has something against you put your gift down and be reconciled to your brother or sister It seems to me that is one of the most important things that we can do as Christians. I think that is a prophetic, Uh, activity that we need to be engaged in. And yeah. it's an honor and privilege to do that with you and and so many others.
0: Yeah, back at you. And just to to reintroduce the show, if you're just tuning in, I'm Shane Claiborne, and I've been talking with Bishop Mark Beckwith, uh, who is a friend and also a, a as we say at Red Letter Christians, a co-conspirator. We're conspiring for good. Uh, and and um, we've been doing a lot of work together around gun violence, but we realize that gun violence is kind of a manifestation of a lot of other social struggles. Um and and so we we've been talking about Mark's latest book, uh Seeing the Unseen. And the 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 kind of um the subtitle's incredible Beyond Prejudices, Paradigms, and Party Lines. And it feels like that's Sort of what we're good at is bumper stickers and talking points. Um, and Mark, I was thinking of one of the books that I read before yours that we featured at our, our Red Letter Christians was Kirsten Power's book, Saving Grace. And, mm-hmm. and she talks about how um, we don't just disagree with each other, but uh, she does she cites this study, uh, more in common study, where um, but almost exactly the same number of Republicans and Democrats Think that the their, their political adversary is not just wrong, but they're evil, mm-hmm. and a disturbing number of both po- folks on the right and the left think that the world would be better off without the other party. Um, that's a really concerning, you know, place to be. I mean, there's there's a lot of layers of this, right? That like. A part of it is that we feel like we only have two political options in our country um, and that they've made the rules that keep out any nuance of that. But there's also this like sense that the other person is not we don't just disagree, but like there's something evil going on there. And you you can kind of feel a little bit of that um, happening in, in a lot of different um, flavors, I guess you would say. You know?
1: Yeah. Yeah, and and, and uh, I think it's important to acknowledge that evil is in the world, but I will defend to the end that no one, no one that I can think of, and there are a lot of people who uh, get close to it, no one is evil. People do evil things. One of my mentors in seminary was Henry Nowen, who uh, wrote a lot of books. He since died, and next to Thomas Merton, I consider him the second most important spiritual writer of the 20th century. And he said that the problem with identifying people as evil, then you make the claim, either implicitly or explicitly, that person cannot be converted. Mm-hmm. And when you identify somebody as evil, and you continue to uh uh make that claim he said you end up with auschwitz mm. Mm. uh because uh y- you make the claim people can't uh, uh, y- y- uh can't be converted and so they have to be eliminated yeah and we've seen that over and over and over again through history and as christians it seems to me we can never say that yes evil exists yes we can consort with evil but no one is inherently evil Mm-hmm. We're made in the image of God. There's a goodness in all of us and we need to call it out. Now that said, sometimes we need to be uh in in conflict with others, uh but around the issue, uh mm-hmm. not to not to demean or diminish or or deny their basic humanity. And more and more of that is happening that people's basic humanity is denied. Yeah. Or there's necessary collateral damage. Mm-hmm. Uh and I don't buy that. So let's talk about a little like
0: how, how you know, you've done a lot of experiments in yep. cracking the silos. Braver Angels has been one of those. Um, but there's been a lot of work that we've done in the movement uh, around gun violence. Uh, in, in Philadelphia, we had a powerful um, kind of public lament, grieving of gun violence. And one of the groups that showed up was hunters against gun violence and there was Mm. another group of gun owners against assault weapons and they had they had on the back of their t-shirts uh a a hunter doesn't need 10 rounds to shoot a deer um and you know and so there's these groups of gun owners concerned about gun violence i mean even when it comes to some of these laws that we know would save lives like 80 percent of gun owners want to see some of these changes that we're talking about in our shop at raw tools philly we have gun locks for that are free you know for gun owners that want to be a little bit more intentional and safe with the guns in their house um so we're trying to have uh, you know a a broader movement that's not self-righteous that's not just about the left or the right but about advocating because the guns don't discriminate, you know, they're killing folks that are conservative and liberal. They're killing all of our children. Um, So talk a little bit, you know, what are some tools or maybe a story that where you've seen um, some success in getting through the kind of political paralysis that we're in?
1: Well, I'll tell a personal story, then I'll tell a story of of uh, reasonable success. The personal story is uh, several years ago, I went to a gun show and I was walking through um, uh, what was being offered there. Most of them were uh, uh, antique guns, but there were a lot of accessories being sold. And I was listening to people talk and most of them were gun owners and they treasured their guns and the culture that they were in. And as I walked around, I, I, I began to realize I didn't understand what they were talking about. Mm. Uh, Not that they were talking a different language, but um, I didn't know the metaphors, I didn't know the context, and I realized, oh my goodness, this is a culture that is deeply American, and I don't know it, Mm. and and I can dismiss this culture or... uh, uh, um, create distance between myself and it, and I realized I come at it with a level of arrogance and smugness and self-righteousness that just infuriates the other side. So uh, I think uh, need to learn, We need to learn on the gun violence prevention side, be careful with our language to respect that this part of the American culture has been there since the beginning. We may not like it, but it's there. And and their fear is, as I sense, is they want it to go away. Mm -hmm. One place where there is some success, and New Hampshire has sort of, where I live now, has been on the leading edge of this, uh, is in the area of suicide. Uh, there's a New Hampshire Firearm Safety Coalition uh, that's been around for 10 years and it's uh, spawned other similar groups with gun trainers and gun shop owners and public health people working together to reduce the incidence of suicide. Because mm-hmm. over half of done gun deaths uh, um, in the aggregate. Our are, are suicide in New Hampshire, where I am, where the gun laws are more relaxed, it's seventy-five to eighty percent. It's mm-hmm. in everybody's interest to reduce the level of uh, of suicide, and there is some movement on both sides coming together to to do that.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know, I I when I think of Jesus, I think one of the things that he did was invite everybody to the table, no matter who they were, you know. And and in fact, um, when you look at the, the the kind of holy banquet table of Jesus you see a zealot who was a violent revolutionary um a, a Roman tax collector um they weren't friends naturally um you know you had like marginalized women you had Pharisees that would never be with uh, one another and and Jesus is really trespassing you know on on these kind of um boundaries that we've created but he's also like, not compromising, like the new identity, the new sense of family that we have in Christ. You're going to have to let go of the sword. You're going to have to rethink the tax collecting system. Like this is about becoming a new creation together, um, and and that 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 becomes really tricky. You know, uh, as we think of. Um, uh, how entrenched some of that is but um i want to hear your second story but i you know you and i helped organize a vigil uh down at the nra convention um when uh the the nra the national rifle association gathered um and this just isn't a gun owners group this has become really a representative of the most extreme positions um Uh, around kind of the idolatry of guns in our country, and they held their convention in Texas uh, right after the Uvalde shooting. So we're at the one-year anniversary of that, and uh, Mark and I and many others helped organize um, a a vigil and protests there, and um, we read the names of the victims of Uvalde. But, Mark, one of the things that was so interesting was I was a little – uh, uneasy, you know, going into the National yeah. Rifle Association. And one of the things that happened is almost as soon as we had walked in the door, um, there was this young man that had read a couple of my books. And um <laughs> and, and he, he came and he was so excited, and I was too. I was so excited to see a smiling face, you know. And we we started talking, and I think it was the Holy Spirit just kind of going, the, the, like, don't ever think that I can't get through. Uh, the like these these kind of uh, weird um, self-righteousness and these cubicles that were these silos that we kind of find ourselves in. So we had this amazing conversation and that was the start of our engagement there, you know? And I don't want to yeah. cheapen or trivialize the damage the NRA is doing, but there's human beings inside there and we had an incredible encounter, you know?
1: Indeed. And as you're saying that, I mean, there's an enormous amount of money uh, yeah. that funds the funds, the campaign for more guns. Uh, I think there was $2 million spent by the NRA and the uh, Sports Shirting uh, Federation based in Newtown, Connecticut, that uh, was spent to make sure that the first uh, appointee for the uh, alcohol ATF, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms was not uh, approved. Mm. Um, because uh he wanted to upgrade and and bring in more uh, resources into the ATF and be able to track uh, uh violence more readily and uh enormous amount of money. So that's the the notion that we um that we're all in this together, we're all in this together, and it's very tempting to demonize the other side. And whenever uh I, find myself, feel the impulse uh, to do that, I bring myself back to prayer Mm. and to pray for God's guidance and mercy. Mm.
0: That's a good word. And uh, uh, thank you all for listening in. Uh, My guest has been Bishop Mark Beckwith, and I hope you'll read his book, Seeing the Unseen, and uh, track what we're doing, not just around gun violence, but trying to soften hearts
1: uh, in over here in the united states so and that suicide is one area yeah uh, that that we can work together on because there are people on the gun rights side who also want to reduce the level of suicide and one of the most effective um uh, uh video spots that i've seen was of a gun owner and uh, uh, a trainer saying that he had uh, went through a, a really difficult time and it was thinking of hurting himself. And he talked to a friend, take my guns, and it made all the difference. Very, very powerful witness. You want to say anything more about the new coalition we've got, National Faith Leaders for gun? Yeah, The new faith coalition is, uh, um, Genesis was in the uh, preparation for our gathering in Houston to be a witness about gun violence prevention during the NRA convention. And we were really working well together, and we expanded that group a year, a little over a year ago. We met at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., and we determined, at least initially, that we would be Christian leaders because so much of the debate is, is centered in the Christian tradition. And what we were able to do is to bring progressive Christians and evangelical Christians, people who are more uh, liberal people who are more conservative, and may disagree on a whole bunch of other issues, but are four square committed to reducing gun violence. Yeah, and the idea that that we can develop a network and uh, have a database uh, that tracks congregations all across the country uh, who are doing gun violence prevention work at one level or another and they we can teach one another and lift people up. Um, well one one group is certainly the group that you're part of Shane raw tools taking breaking down returned guns and making them into garden tools. another group that is expanding its its breadth, is Clergy for Safe Cities, which is based in Brooklyn. And some of the precincts there have had the most gun violence of any place in the country per capita. And they are making a witness, bringing together predict- pre- predominantly uh, black and brown clergy who live with this all the time. And their focus is not on policy, but on responding to families and getting guns out of the hands of kids. Mm. Mm. And uh heard a witness from a, a pastor in Chicago named Corey Brooks, known as the rooftop pastor. And yeah. he spent 11 months on top of a abandoned hotel. And uh, other people came up, the uh, Chicago Bulls went up there to bring attention to gun violence because he said either in his congregation or in his neighborhood or both, he had 25 men lose their lives to gun violence in one year.
0: Yeah, it's unbelievable. I, I've and after with, 11 I've months he raised, Corey. yeah.
1: He uh he raised 28 million dollars for a community. Yeah,
0: so good and there's
1: there's folks
0: that it's really helpful to mention those incredible resistors of the normalcy and the um you know cynicism and the overwhelming like heaviness of gun violence. There's people that are working um tirelessly or sometimes we're tired, uh, but we're working (laughs) in neighborhoods (laughs) all over the country. You know, this will probably come out, y'all. In in the U.S., we have June is a a, a gun violence awareness month. A lot of folks have um, uh, Wear Orange um, that if you if you check out Wear Orange and Google it online, you'll see where that came from. But it's basically a young woman in Chicago who was a part of an event with Obama and then came back and lost her life to gun violence. And her friends started wearing orange, um, looking at the way that hunters wear orange to try to be safe. And um, that's become sort of a color and symbol of the movement. So this month, there's all kinds of stuff happening. One of the things is that we're doing a blacksmith marathon. Uh, We're blacksmithing one minute for every life that was lost last year. Uh, through the month of June with Raw Tools. So uh, that's 44,000 minutes of blacksmithing. You'll see us kind of pass the torch to each other um, as we continue blacksmithing this month. There's going to be all kinds of other events, but I wanted to see if there's anything else uh, that you know of or ways that people can
1: websites or social media or anything out there, Mark, that you want people yeah, to know about? Yeah. Memorials to the Lost, which uh, makes t-shirts of people who have died and and puts them outside of religious communities. I think what's important to realize is that there uh, to reduce gun violence, there's not one strategy. There's not one Um, uh, initiative that's going to make the difference. So often uh, when I talk to people, they think, oh my gosh, I I don't know how to call my congressperson. I don't know how to write a letter. I don't want to write a letter. They think it's all focused on policy. That's where people think they need to start. And often is where they they stop. There are other ways uh, to be involved. Um, Cleaning and greening is is uh uh, is demonstrating to show a reduction in gun violence vacant lots that have uh you put um shrubs in there uh put plant trees there's a direct correlation between doing that and reducing gun violence Uh, focusing on the on the uh, presence of lead in a community uh, that reduces gun violence we're learning more and more on the public health side Uh, The policy stuff is very, very important. But at the federal level, having done some uh, uh, lobbying last week uh, in Congress, um, for the most part, now that's a Mm -hmm. non-starter or very, very slender victories around that. Uh, But also community violence intervention, uh, um, having violence interrupters in communities, all sorts of communities. And if it works, the only way we're discovering that it works is if the violence interrupters who are uh, community activists or community social workers, if they're working in conjunction with the police, if there's a tension between the police and the violence interrupters, then it becomes a turf issue and nothing gets done.
0: Yeah, that might be another show. We got to talk about the policing. But uh, yeah, we'll st- yeah, we'll stop there. But I I think... Uh, you know, uh, one of the things that you and I share in common is this, this real, uh, sense that when people say it's, it's, you know, that gun violence is not a gun problem. It's a heart problem. We say, uh, it can be both, you know, and, and we need to God to heal hearts, but we also need to, um, take action on policies that would save lives. And, um, so, you know, in closing, uh, uh, I know m- most people are listening to this, but I've got in my hand one of the tools that we make. And my friend, Mike Martin, um, who uh, founded Raw Tools, and we've been doing this work for 10 years together. Uh, he sometimes says that this is the easy work, uh, transforming metal and blacksmithing, you know, a gun barrel into a garden tool. The harder work is the hard work is the work of changing hearts and healing our streets. And that work is what uh, Bishop Mark Beckwith has been doing for so long. And I hope you'll also um, read his book, Seeing the Unseen. But I thought I'd close, Mark, unless you got any closing words. I wanted to close with these words of Henry Nouwen because you mentioned how much he meant to you. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, is that I all right? That.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you any closing words or places where people should follow you? No, just that Henry was a friend, mentor, and teacher. And uh, those of us who were at Yale Divinity School when he was there, uh, there are hundreds who say that we are where we are in me- large measure because of Henry yeah. and uh, his pastoral uh, reach. I don't know how he did it, but he did, and he was very important to me at critical pom- moments in my life. And one thing, once, sto- quick story. I was upset about something that happened at the divinity school. Uh, they removed somebody uh, who I was close to because she had uh, made two or three uh, suicidal gestures. And I went to talk to the dean about this because I thought, how can a Christian community do this? And he mumbled or something. I don't know. It was double talk. Then I went to talk to Henry now and. And unfolded all this for him. And I thought, oh, he was going to tell me, Mark, get out of this place. And he looks me straight in the eye and he says, what do you expect? And basically said, people try and do the best they can. And often it's not very good. Mm. But get used to it. Mm. And that was one of the most helpful things that anybody has ever said to me. Uh, Because we often don't do as well as we can. And we can do better. Mm. Mm. And we better and that his his challenge to me was kind of an inspiration and a a goading for me to continue to work uh to help help us do better
0: yeah how about that that was a that's a great uh, great little henry Nowen story and i know for many people uh uh that may be a new name for you henry Nowen, but he was a wonderful uh catholic priest who uh used harvard as a stepping stone to go on and do great things with his life and uh <laughs> And You know, it uh, was an instrumental part of the large community uh, living with folks that um, together uh, took care of each other. And um, you should check out his writing. But I um, uh, wanted to close with, close with this quote. Uh, this is Henry now. And he said, your neighbor shares your humanity with you across all barriers of land and language, wealth and poverty, knowledge and ignorance. We are one created from the same dust subject to the same laws and destined to the same end. With this compassion, you can say, in the face of the oppressed, I recognize my own face. And in the hands of the oppressor, I recognize my own hands. Their flesh is my flesh. Their blood is my blood. Their pain is my pain. Their smile is my smile. So those are the words of Henry now, And My guest has been Bishop Mark Beckwith. Thanks so much, man. Thank you, Shane.